Welcome to your upfront moment. We're building a confidence revolution. Hi friends, I'm Lauren Curry, the founder of Upfront. We're an organisation on a mission to change confidence for 1 million women and non-binary people by 2023. And we do this in three ways. We transform your relationship and habits around confidence, power and visibility through our six-week online course. Each cohort is called a bond. Bond is the collective noun for a group of women and over a thousand women have graduated from a bond from over 20 different countries. We build community, real, genuine, human community, where women learn how to stand up for themselves and each other. We hold each other to account. We celebrate each other and learn together. Our community is Global Bond. We create content that will inspire, challenge and motivate you to be upfront. We are here to change confidence, not women. Upfront Moment is designed to kick your week off with confidence, self-compassion and agency. Hi Fred, welcome to this week's Upfront Moment. This week we're doing things a little differently because this week's Upfront Moment is a recording of an in-person event that we hosted in November. This event was called How to Successfully Challenge the Status Quo. We hosted it in London over breakfast and it was a morning of challenging our ideas around power and confidence for our business, clients, friends and collaborators. What does it mean to challenge the status quo? Why should you encourage your employees, your team to challenge the status quo? So of course I invited Dr. Minal Viz to come and have this conversation with me. Minal became a global figure after her one women protest outside Downing Street in 2020, following the death of a fellow healthcare worker just days before. Together with Minal, we reflect on her decision to protect against the systemic issues healthcare workers were facing and what organisations can learn from her approach. A gentle warning that Minal does talk in detail about some of the deaths she witnessed that inspired her to take the incredible action that she took. I hope this upfront moment moves you, brings you hope, motivation and energy. Let's go. Okay, so are we all ready to go, tech team? This is very... I went to see Backstreet Boys last night at the O2. It was very exciting. So there's a bit of me that does want to grab this mic and launch into a dance routine. I can't oh. promise you I'll join you there, Lauren. But So, Minal, it's so nice to see you. Thank you, Lauren. Thank Would you, you please me. introduce yourself, tell us who you are and about the mission that you're on in the world. So firstly, thanks you to everybody who's come here today. It's nice to have met some of you this morning and I hope we can all connect a bit later as well. So uh, my name is Mina, I'm a, an NHS doctor and I met Lauren a couple of years ago when I was campaigning for better protection of healthcare workers. So 
I don't really want to go back to that time in 2020. I think it was quite a bleak time for a lot of us. Um, but it all started there. And I think that's when we grow to be our best versions of ourselves in the most difficult times. So it was 2020 and I was six months pregnant. And we were all working in the hospital trying to fight this unknown virus, not knowing what was happening. And we were on our knees begging for protection from the government. And I found myself in a very difficult position, Lauren, because I felt like I wanted to speak up, but I didn't have the language. I felt like I didn't have the language to use to speak up. Like, how do you say this is not right and something needs to be done? And almost in my head, I'm like, people on Instagram, on these TED Talks have these such inspirational messages and I can't speak like that. Um, But through, you know, my own gut feeling, I felt that if I didn't speak up, I'd probably regret it for the rest of my life. Um, And knowing that I had a baby growing inside me, you know, when Radhika grows up and she learns about the pandemic, she's probably going to ask me one day, well, mommy, people were dying around you what did you do? And I just wouldn't have the guts to say. I just watched it all happen. So we, we we were working and we just kept going for our patients. But I think the biggest issue I had at that time was that because I was pregnant and a lot of pregnant healthcare workers were working as well, we weren't being protected. And more specifically, those from ethnic minority groups weren't being heard. And all the evidence was in front of us that ethnic minority groups were being disproportionately affected but it's almost like everyone just shrugged the shoulder and moved on. And I was coming home every day, Lauren, and just seeing the statistics go up. You know, one healthcare worker died and you had like a full bulletin on this person, the full like family story, and this person was a great person. Then it went from one to 10 to 200. And then you think, well, where does this stop? And the NHS is so big, such a big institution. Who do you even go to to say, we need to change this? Where do you even start? And I think I just had to just take a step back and think, okay, I'm just going to go through the normal routes of escalation. Went to my managers, went to my senior doctors, and none of that worked. And it was almost like a culture of oppression within the NHS at that time. And I was being threatened for speaking up. So not only was I pregnant and going through the stress of being pregnant in a pandemic, but also the idea of not just losing my job, but losing my medical license, which I worked so hard for. And... It wasn't just the gaslighting from the NHS, it was the gaslighting from our government ministers as well. And I thought, this is this is not okay. How can you go on TV saying we got everything under control when I'm seeing everything in front of my own eyes? I can see the suffering, but nobody else can see it. Just keep in mind at that time, cameras weren't even allowed in the NHS. Doctors weren't allowed on BBC. Doctors weren't allowed to speak up to the media. People oh, were just terrified. Yeah, we were... So you we, were told not to speak to press? There was a gagging order. And there were emails going around within NHS staff saying, you're not allowed to be, if you're contacted by media, either come to us first or you're not allowed to to say anything. So my husband and I were stuck in a big moral dilemma because everything that was happening was going completely against our values. And then it was the death of a a pregnant nurse, Nurse Mary Ajipong, who passed away and I think the universe just put it together because her husband lived across the road from us and she left behind her newborn baby and her two-year-old. And I saw the grief that hit this family. And it's so easy for us, you know, to like read these things on social media, on Facebook, on Instagram, like, yeah, speak up, speak up. And it's almost like you just sort of absorb it and then you wake up the next day and you carry on with your own life. 
But when have we really put that into practice? When have we read these quotes, these inspirational quotes, or these listened to these TED Talks and said, actually, you know what? I'm actually going to put this into practice. I'm going to step up. I'm going to try and make a difference. And I, I don't know if it was my like pregnancy hormones or like <laughs> just my gut feeling. I said, I have to do something about this. So then that's when I went out and I protested outside Downing Street, um, outside number 10. Mm. I mean, so I've heard Mina's story multiple times and every time it still, you know, gives me shivers. And there's so much to learn from you, from your mindset, from the actions you took. But before we get into what happened the day of the protest, and I all I wish we had a, we could show you the photograph of Minal, which ended up being across multiple national newspapers of her standing on her own outside Downing Street with a really big pregnant tummy and her mask on. What did your sign say? It said protect healthcare workers. Protect healthcare workers. But I would love for you to talk a wee bit about getting to that point because I know that not only was the pressure to stay small and stay quiet coming from your organization it was also coming from your loved ones and the people that you turned to for advice you know your small circle of support they were really scared and didn't want you to do this yeah and I think it's really important to remember like when we look at activists online or campaigners or even in our own companies, small companies, no matter how small or big they are, that we, we each have our own cultural load that we have to tackle. So I know for a fact that, for example, Lauren, if you had gone out and protested, maybe you didn't have to carry the same burden on your 100%. shoulders as, as, I, as I did. And, you know, we wouldn't be running the same race. I come from a very simple family where my parents came from India. They worked hard to make a, a, a decent life in Europe. And it was just work hard, get your head down, get the job done. You don't even, you have to be grateful for everything that's put on your plate. And I think that's sort of become weaponized against us now, that we have to be grateful for the opportunities we're given, even especially as women, that that sort of, that term that, oh, you've been given this opportunity, you should be grateful. Um, It was sort of being weaponized against me that, oh, you're a doctor, like, it's fine, you'll be okay, you'll still have a job, you'll be fine. But the root of it all, Lauren, is that people were dying for no reason, and it could have been prevented. So my parents were obviously very concerned. I had extended family in India who were also concerned. But they said to me that, Meenal, if you speak up against the government, you might. I mean, pe- my parents were like, you might even lose your British citizenship. Like, yeah. you know, we got that scared. It's, yeah. it's and, and it has happened. You think it won't happen to you, but it has happened to other families. We read in the news over the last couple of years. Um, but then it was also a, a, another aspect of, our daughter's face is going to be all over the news. It's going to be on world media. Is that a good thing or is that a bad thing? And also I was pregnant. So in our families, we don't tell people about our pregnancy till a bit later down the line. It's just a cultural thing. My parents like, you know, they gave in at the end because they're like, she's our daughter. We just have to support her and, you know, she'd be okay. And now they're starting to understand. But I had lots of my family members who completely just cut me off and said, we don't want to have anything to do with her. Um, she's bringing shame to the family. So actually now that I look back, two years ago since people have cut me off I think I probably have like four family members who talk to me which include my parents (laughs) but if that's the price I have to pay to start a conversation about creating change I don't want to I don't think I'm going to create change in my lifetime Mm because I know that's not possible but if at least I can start that conversation and just put that spark and plant that seed 
I think that's that's worth it more than anything else. Mm. And so what happened next? So you stood outside with your sign, the kind of famous photograph that ended up getting you lots of press coverage. What happened next? Well, my Twitter went viral. It completely <laughs> broke. Um, I didn't even know Twitter was such a powerful tool at that time. And I think that's when I started to realise that we each we each have a voice and we each have power to speak up, no matter how big or how small, because we're always told this narrative, especially in my culture, where you're a girl, just stay quiet, you don't need to say anything, you just get on with it and that's it. But actually, when you start speaking up, there will be someone out there who'll listen to you and someone who'll actually hold your hand and say, let me try and help you. And there was so much support on Twitter. So many people said, we really believe in what you're doing, we mm. want to help you. And then through that, we got in touch with um, a few retired doctors who got in touch with us and they said, actually, Mila, I think we should actually take the government to court for this. And there were lots of talks about... Um, Just a small idea. <laughs> there were lots of talks at that time about like a public inquiry and all these, and we know that these kind of things take such a long time. And expensive, right? Yeah, and by the time, like I think now they've just started doing a public inquiry in like the COVID stuff. And only two months ago, they came up with a conclusion. I'm like, well, families have suffered, people have died. I don't really know what this is gonna bring. So there was a sense of urgency at that time. Like, how can I hold these people accountable right now mm -hmm. to prevent more people dying? And that was the only route at that time. So people got in touch with us. We got in touch with our lawyers. We crowdfunded about 85,000 pounds through social media mainly because we were in a pandemic so there was nothing that was face to face so everything was online and had you done anything like that before never in my life so Laura. how did you because this is what fascinates me like there's so moments of of being up front right there's so many moments of i have no idea how to do this but i'm gonna try i i'm being told by people i trust and love not to do this but i feel like i have to do it so i'm gonna do it so a crowdfunding campaign raising £85,000. How did you learn how to do that? I think the at that time, because it was such a big sense of urgency, I had to ask people for help. And I wasn't afraid of doing that. And Twitter was such a big tool at that time where I could message people, DM people, said, okay, look, this is what I'm trying to do. Can you help me? Have you always been good at asking for help? No. <laughs> I've been very, very bad at that. And I think it's part of... And I think it's even part of the culture of being a doctor is mm -hmm. that you just want to feel like you can do everything by yourself, okay. you know. I mean, there have been times where I've tried to take blood from a patient and I've tried like 20 times and I'd be like, no, I'm going to go for the 21st time and try this again. Because <laughs> it's just part of our nature. Like we can do everything and we, you know, we want to get to the end goal by ourselves. But at that time, I realized despite what the world tells you and or despite how the world tries to make you feel at times where you feel like, oh, nobody wants to help, nobody wants to listen people will listen mm -hmm. and the thing that I learned at that time as well was that the first thing is not one person is going to solve all your problems you think that someone's like yeah I'll help you and then you think okay this person's going to do everything for me that's the first thing and the second thing is is that you're going to have to ask maybe 50 people for one person to come and say okay mm -hmm. I'm really going to help you. It's a number you. scheme right? It is yeah. right and I mean the number of emails I sent the number of Twitter DMs Instagram messages I sent for people to help but then the people who came up front to help were really really good and I'm still in touch with them and keep in mind none of these people were my family mm. and that was the thing that fascinated me the most is that we keep we try to have such a big connection with our with our own loved ones and our own circle but there are people outside that who want to help and if you go out and look for them then actually can really be life-changing mm. 
Incredible. Hi friends, I'm here to tell you all about our conference. On March the 11th in Glasgow in Scotland, we are hosting our very first conference, Up Front and Centre. And our theme is Activating Grace in a World on Fire. Because I know that you've spent the last three years lurching from one unprecedented event to another. You're hungry for community, hope and real significant change. How can we all show up in the world with less overwhelm and more confidence? Grace. We have got an incredible lineup. You can join us in person or digitally. Go to upfrontandcentre.com to find out more and get your tickets. I can't wait to meet you in person. So you pulled a group of people, you had a core kind of crash team, if you like, you had your £85,000. Then what happened next? So actually, just to go back, it started mm. off as a legal challenge. That's like the technical term. I don't know if there are any, any lawyers in here today, but that was a legal term, a legal challenge, which was just, we're going to simply write a letter to Matt Hancock um, and we want him to respond to us within, I think it was like 28 days or something mm -hmm. like that. And it was just as simple as, please change the guidelines. Because at that time, it, it was ridiculous. We were using like science gloves and science mm -hmm. aprons and plastic like bin liners. We were just like, please change the guidelines because they weren't in guidance with Mm -hmm. um, the scientific advice and there was lots of back and forth of course with public health and by the time they got back from our first letter it had been 45 days and another 50 healthcare workers had died and that's when we said okay they're obviously not playing ball mm -hmm. we need to step it up because if they had stopped there then it wouldn't even have cost us 85,000 pounds mm. it would have been a much cheaper process um, and then we had to step it up but obviously we stepped it up we needed more money and this is when journalists got involved, uh, campaign groups got involved, and we started making videos online to explain our story and what we were trying to achieve from it. Um, and we had big, big donors. Like Some people were coming in saying, we, we want to give you £10,000, £12,000. Mm -hmm. We want to help you. Um, and that's when we decided to take the government to court. And at that point, I was like, I am going to give birth in court. <laughs> you know, by the time this uh, like case ends... It's never a good idea. <laughs> never a good idea. Um, and I still remember going into my C-section, going into theatre, my phone rang and it was my lawyer. They were like, oh, Matt Hancock's team have got back to us. And I'm like, this is like the biggest moment of my life. <laughs> Can it wait a second? Um, so I think the process took from April 2020 to December 2020. Mm -hmm. But to cut a long story short, Matt Hancock's team had like, they had nothing to play against us because they knew that they were wrong. Mm. The only option at the time was to take it to the high court, which is very, very common in these government cases. They just keep playing the long game, keep playing the long game. They take it to the high court. The ministers know the judges and the judges sort it out for them and it's under the rug and it's, that's it. But these guys couldn't even take it to the high court because they knew that they had nothing yeah. against us. So in December 2020, they sent us a letter and they said, okay, we're going to change the guidelines. And it's actually now a legal requirement for the NHS to provide pr protective gear, which is in line with WHO guidance, but it's also got um, an obligation to protect pregnant um, healthcare workers in times of crisis, in times like of the pandemic, and to make sure that 
those who are pregnant and those who are from ethnic minority groups have proper risk assessment. So for example, if I go into work today and say, look, I'm not very comfortable working in A&E because of COVID, they can work around that and they will move me somewhere else. It's a legal requirement now. And that happened in December 2020. And then the case finished. And it was almost like, you know, when a pressure cooker builds up and then you hear the whistle and Mm. it just like deflates all of Mm. a sudden. And that was a feeling like it's done now. What do I do now? And I had the baby as well to look after. And there was lots of emotions running through me because it almost felt like all my life's work was put into that six months. Mm -hmm. And that's it. Now, what do I do? But then from there, I met people like yourself and I found more purpose in my story and how powerful my story was. Mm -hmm. Then I realized actually so many other people have similar stories Mm -hmm. and there's so much power in that. And if we talk more about it, if we share about if we share our stories, then we can empower more people around us. And was that roughly when you joined the bond around about that time? Yes, it it was a bit after that. So December 2020 is when it all finished. And I think it was in the year after, so 2021 is when I joined the bond. Mm-hmm. And that sort of reignited everything again. Because everything that I'd gone through in 2020 was, I guess you could say, like, I was very novice in everything. I didn't really know what I was going on. But then my learnings and my ideas were much more crystallized now mm-hmm. after joining the bond because I realized that actually these are the things that played a role in my decision making. These are the things that played a role in even being a mother or even being a good um, being a good doctor and being a good communicator. So everything sort of crystallized when I came into the yeah. bond. Because th- I'm curious because I know there'll be lots of you listening to me now just totally blown away by your bravery, your courage what you've achieved, but also how brilliant a storyteller you are, incredibly articulate, incredibly calm, thinking, why would somebody... It's all recording, right, Daisy? (laughs) (laughs) Like, why would somebody like that need to go on a confidence course? And I'm doing inverted Mm. commas because I feel like everyone in this room, most of us, we know that that label is such a disservice because it's... First of all, confidence is such a deep and nuanced thing, but it's being upfront is about so much more than that. So I would love you just to talk a wee bit about why you wanted to join and kind of where you were at the end of it and what that experience gave you because now you have signed a book deal. Yay! <laughs> Epic news. And you are making big decisions about your life and your family. So yeah, talk to us about kind of that that time in the bond and how that shifted things for you. It's a very interesting point, Lauren, because I think at that time as well, so this was after I had done everything December 2020. And I mean, I, put in a, I can't put this in a humble way, but everybody basically wanted a piece of menal whether it was no but it was it was it was a lot because oh she's a brown woman who's created change she's a south asian woman who's created change let's bring her on the panel let's bring her and it almost felt like um i was doing it because i had to and because at this point i had no energy left in me Mm. after december 2020 it all it all happened i was very sleep deprived because of the baby and because of the stress um i had a four-month-old baby who just wanted to be breastfed all the time at the same Why time, did they do that? So inconvenient. <laughs> I know how, how selfish, right? <laughs> um, 
So, I, and at the same time, I have this opportunity now to build, I guess, to some extent, a personal brand and say, okay, mm-hmm. now I can go on Instagram, I can say something and I have authority to say it. And people and, will listen. And people will yeah. listen. But that didn't happen. So I thought at this time, December 2020, I'd go from, so actually, just to put it back, when I first went on Twitter, I had 200 followers, probably all robots anyway. Um, and then now, that, then that blew up to, to about 15K, 16K. Um, and I thought, okay, then we can do this on Instagram. Now I'm going to get all these deals and people are going to want me to do this. And, and it was dead. It was just tumbleweed. And I sent emails to people. So then I was like, okay, then maybe I have to put myself out there. Mm-hmm. Sent emails to people saying, look, this is what I've done. I'd like to be a part of your project, whatever that, whatever they were doing at that time. And people were like, Mina, look, we love your story. We love what you stand for, but we're not really feeling it. And the number of emails I got like that, Lauren, because my dream was, okay, I've done, I've done, I've done it. That's it. I've reached the finish line. Minal TV. That's what, <laughs> That's what we all wanted. I was like, I've reached the finish line. My life is set. Yeah. I don't even need to be a doctor anymore because that's what the world shows us on mm, social media. The arc of it just yes. does this. Like yeah. it just pops up. Mm. And I look back at my life now, Lauren, and I've done lots of things. Like, I've, you know, I started the podcast eight years ago. I was just telling Daisy as well. I've been podcasting for almost eight years. That's awesome. I, I still haven't made it, but I'm still doing it. And that's mm. when I realized that actually I'm still very young, but... When you look at, when you zoom out and you look at your life as a sort of picture frame and you look at the pixels, that legal challenge was just one pixel of everything else that I was supposed to be doing. And you do have to work hard. And I know that I have to probably work harder than most other people, maybe because of my, you know, my, the privileges I don't have. Um, But that, those few months were a big, big realization for me that actually my, you know, just because you did one good thing doesn't mean that your life is set. And being an upfront told me that as well is really understanding, you know, what you actually want from your life. Mm. Because it made me really reflect that, am I making, did I actually do all of that just for the followers or did I do it? Because you start to think about it, right? It does make you think sometimes like, actually I did all of that with the hope that this would happen, but it didn't happen. Then why am I upset about it? Mm. And it's because the internet, social media, what we see makes us believe that that is something that does happen. It doesn't. Um, so coming on, onto upfront, as I said, crystallized all my ideas and it made me much more confident in my decision-making process as well. Mm. And I don't think I've mentioned this, but I'm from Gibraltar, some very tiny country, um, south of Spain. And I had a very comfortable life there. Um, never experienced racism or discrimination. So when the Gibraltarians saw Minal on TV, Everyone was like, wow, Minal's on TV, like, it's great. People were, like, knocking on my dad's door, like, saying congratulations. Like, you know, there was that warmth from the community. Um, And we were even, you know, very lucky that the chief minister, like, wrote a letter to my parents as well, which my parents have very proudly framed. But I I still tell them, remember all the... All the stuff you told me when you said, don't protest. Mm. (laughs) Now you've gone and framed this on the wall for people to see. But at that time, I remember there was a political party in Gibraltar. And they said, Mina, why don't you come on? We'll make you a minister. Oh, I remember you called me about this, yeah. And they said, we'll make you a minister. So at this stage, I'm 28 years old. On paper, it was great, Lauren. Young, brown woman, minister. It's never happened in Gibraltar. Mm. It would have been like a great news story. But mentally, I just wasn't there. I didn't feel ready to do it. And it was so tempting to just be like, yeah, I'm going to do it. Let's just relocate. Also, and ministers have to stick to the rules. I feel like it's not your jam. 
so then I I had to contemplate a lot and I realized that actually at this time in my life this is not the right time maybe in like 20 years you know something might come down the line but you will going on up front and understanding the nuances involved in decision making for example and actually understanding what your needs are and what you want from your life and what you're trying to achieve in the long term made me say okay this would have probably just been uh to su- to some extent it would have just been like a a project i would have just done just for the sake of it i don't think my mind would have been in it so now i've taken a a big you know, decision to say, I'm only going to take projects up that I feel are having an impact and not because it's going to look good on social media, for example, or look good on my CV or look good on paper. And we, when we talked about bringing people together this morning and kind of what we, how we wanted to frame it and why we wanted to tell your story, this idea of challenging the status quo was the theme that we kept coming back to because I think you know, we both do that in very, very different ways. And I know all of you here are, some of you are doing that inside organizations. Some of you are teaching clients how to do that. Some of you are building your own startups to do that. So I would love to hear from you, Mina, on like, why do we need to challenge the status quo? All of us, regardless of our employment setup, of our power, of our age, why do we need more people especially women, to challenge the status quo? Because I think we need to make more people uncomfortable. I don't think we've done enough of that, Lauren. Mm. I think we've all been too comfortable in seeing... This is why our badge says, where is it? May our confidence upset them. That's very intentional. Because it was actually one of the things that you posted, Lauren, about imposter syndrome. And you said how that's like a myth um, and that that doesn't really exist. And that, I think that, that one thing that you had posted really like struck a chord with me and it resonated with me a lot and made me think that actually a lot of the times we're afraid to challenge the status quo or speak up is because we're afraid of making people uncomfortable mm. and that's that was my problem as well in the hospitals like oh wait, maybe my managers might be upset because if I tell them that they're not doing this right then and I'm know. sure some of them were yeah they were and <laughs> I mean I could go on about this we could record another podcast about this but just like the the extent that they went to to scare to, you. to stop me like getting calls at 11 o'clock at night on a sunday on a sunday night at 11 o'clock saying whilst you're six months pregnant yeah you can't talk to bbc you can't talk to the media um one of my uh consultants was even going into his surgery and he called me on his like stretcher saying mean like we're gonna you're gonna you're gonna get in a lot of trouble if you keep going um but i realized it made them uncomfortable and it made them uncomfortable because i was speaking the truth mm-hmm. and it was unfiltered it was the real, you know, it was the reality of what was happening. Those people living in a bubble of, which was glazed by um, mistruths, by gaslighting, um, and that's why they were uncomfortable with me. And if we look at the arc of change, if we look at in how things have changed in society over the last 20, 50 years, for women more specifically, it hasn't just been an upward trend. I mean, we've seen what's happened in Iran, in America now, for mm-hmm. example. And one of the things I've reflected on over the last couple of years especially is that change has its peaks and troughs and I was lucky to hit the peak at that time and I could maybe maybe everything I would have done would have just gone down like a lead balloon I don't know but the point is that we have to keep riding this wave of going up and down up and down Mm. and eventually we might not reach that point I say eventually but I don't know if equality will ever exist in our lifetime or in the next generation 
But the point of challenging the status quo is to make people uncomfortable because that's only when you break the mold. Mm. And I think that in, uh, in companies and organizations, we have to be willing to accept that these conversations will happen if you want to make a more equal society. So in anything that I do, even I question my own biases from time to time. Whether I'm meeting somebody new or if I go to a new country, you mm -hmm. have to reflect and say, okay, how am I viewing this person? Through what lens am I viewing this person? Mm -hmm. um, and that's why I think challenging the status quo is really important because it allows us to move along that graph of that change. Mm -hmm. And I love the idea of the kind of pixels in a picture and like accepting that sometimes it will be really hard and you will be full of self-doubt and you will be really scared and other times you'll be on cloud nine and it'll be going really well and people will be listening. But when you take a really big step back and look at the whole picture, it is, it is going in the right direction. Thank you so much for sharing. Your story is just extraordinary. And I think from my point of view, such a some symbolic story of what Upfront is all about and the power of being Upfront. Yes, you know, we talk so much about how it influences and changes how you show up at work, around your leadership, around your contribution, your ability to earn and sell and tell stories and connect. But when you take that outside of the workplace, really incredible things happen. Last week, Donna Patterson, who's a Bond 6 graduate, took her employer Morrison's to court for maternity discrimination, represented herself because she couldn't afford lawyer fees, and she won. They've paid her £60,000 and she is on Steph's Packed Lunch, which is my new claim to fame, uh, saying you know that she would not have started that journey without Upfront and the power of the Bond behind her. So thank you to all of you who have said yes to being Upfront, who have enrolled your teams in the Bond, who are excited about being part of Bond 7 or hosting a corporate Bond for your organisation because I really believe when you learn to be Upfront, we can change the world. Thank you so much. Thank you, Lauren. Thank you so much for listening. This week, your Upfront Challenge is to reflect on the conversation Minal and I had. What does it mean to you to challenge the status quo? And I want to say a special thank you to our sponsors for this event, Sullivan and Stanley. Thank you to Angie and Pat and Vanessa from our team who made this event brilliant. Thank you to all 50 of you who showed up and sent us your beautiful feedback afterwards. We will be hosting more in-person events for our clients and collaborators over the next few months. So stay tuned. Hi friends, I'm here to remind you to get your ticket for Up Front and Centre, our very first conference happening on March the 11th in Glasgow. We are going to be talking about perfectionism, leadership, growth, activism. Will you learn practical skills? Absolutely. We have a global reputation for being action oriented and changing lives and this conference will be that and then some. You'll learn how to prioritise your story, your body, your rights and your identity. How to support other women around you and how to lift others as you climb. You'll skip away from this event feeling softer, excited and supported. And of course we'll be giving you lots of ways to continue your growth after the conference. 
Go to upfrontandcenter.com to find out more and get your ticket. I'll see you on March 11th. Bye.